Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, I'm Althea Kaminsky for the Learning Scientist, and today I'm joined by Natasha Kosulki and Jerry Apps to talk about their new book, Planting an Idea, a guidebook to critical and creative thinking about environmental problems. Uh, Natasha and Jerry, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for inviting us. Yes, thanks. Um, well, I'm really excited to ask you some questions. Um, I'm currently teaching a course on critical and creative thinking, um, and I, I've hosted a few podcast here about the environment and about environmental issues. So this was this is a book that I am looking forward to reading. Thank you very much for writing this book that seems to speak directly to my personal interests. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting. So the first question I have for you is just in general, what does it mean to think critically or think creatively about a problem? And Jerry, I wonder if you could take this one. Yes, I'll, I'll give that a go. I uh, thinking about something uh, uh, critically uh, means looking at it in some depth, taking time, taking time to personally look at the problem and dig deeply into it, look into it from a variety of perspectives. Try to keep your mind blank from what others are yelling about concerning the <laughs> whatever issue is involved. And I am a firm believer that we tie together and not and, and not just do one or the other, but we tie together cr uh, critical thinking and creative thinking because critical thinking helps us dig deeply into the understanding and, the, and, 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 and working hard to look for the truth and not, not just somebody's wild opinion that's not supported, along with, in, in, in creative thinking, ideas that have not been explored previously, thinking about something in, in the solution to a problem that, that some would say, well, geez, that's off the wall. But creative thinking allows us to look at something in a fresh perspective, and then combining those two, critical with creative thinking, gives us, in my opinion now, a working knowledge that allows us to look at, in the case of our book, environmental problems in fresh and new ways. One of the things that I talk a lot about in my class is just sort of appreciating that it is more of a sort of mindset than anything else, that it can be really challenging to think critically, because when you think critically about something, you have to be willing to be wrong, right? You might find that some idea that you had or some opinion that you had really isn't as well supported or really um, as backed up as you thought it was. Similarly, with creativity, you have to be willing to be wrong that it's by definition, you're doing something new or creative that people that maybe isn't the sort of standard or perceived way of looking at it. And so it's really hard. So I talk with my students all the time about the sort of mindset or just like having the motivation to sit down and to think creative, creatively and critically about something, because that means that you, it's a lot of work and it's hard, right? That you're going to run into issues and challenges with it. Also would add that there's an attitude going around, I believe, that let somebody else do this work, and I I will latch onto it and use it. That is so dangerous, and that is happening a good deal these days. 
if Joe says this, it must be okay. We've got to get past that attitude and realize that each one of us has a responsibility as well as the potential for digging out an answer that's ours and ours alone. Right. One of the important components of thinking critically about something is it's not necessarily about discovering the right or the wrong answer. It's about discovering what is the right or the wrong answer for you in the context of your belief systems, the context of your values. What do you feel is important and how will you prioritize this thing? And like you said, I, I mean, Joe may have his own set of priorities and beliefs, and maybe Joe arrived at some conclusion that works for Joe, but maybe not for you, right? Natasha, how does all of this relate now to what, uh, to say, climate change or to water issues, or et cetera? Sure. I think, um, for one thing, I, I believe we need to work on transparency. <laughs> so... Whenever I talk to people, especially those, you know, I try to find some way we can come together and start talking. What do we have in common, right? Um, Where can we start? And then I'd like to ask people, well, tell me about your ideas. And and then how did you come to those, right? And that we're transparent about how we're formulating our ideas, our thought processes, our sources, right? Um, and, And so I find with environmental issues, like climate change, we have just such polarization, right? And it's, it's such a big topic to handle. It's global, it's interdisciplinary, um, that we need to find a starting point and we need to uh, maybe start with a, a discussion and just asking people, you know, how does it impact you? Because then I can better understand where you're coming from, that we look at our own biases, we look at our experiences and how we've, we've gotten to where we are, some of us older than others, um, and how we formulated our opinions. And maybe we come from different cultures, different countries, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and I think that is very important when we look at issues like climate change, where some of the the communities that are most impacted are the ones who are least likely to contribute to it. And that we are bringing diverse voices in and doing our research and um and, you know, I think about things like water issues. Well, you, you can look at, you know, out West, they're water scarce, right? It's a huge um, issue in, in the news. And here, you know, Jerry and I, we are, we're blessed to be in an area of the Great Lakes. <laughs> and so we have to think of where we're coming from. And our water issues, you know, where I live may be very different from another community. It doesn't make one or the other more or less important. Right, right. And, and I would assume then that Part of that means that the solutions that you might come up with are going to be wildly different depending on the particular challenges that you're facing and the particular needs of the community, right? So again, it's not necessarily that there's one right answer that will save us all. It's instead talking about, uh, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about was consensus building and really identifying very specific issues within a community or to somebody personally. So sort of a follow-up question I have for you then is um, if you could name any specific challenges that are involved in thinking critically or creatively about environmental issues, right? If there's something a little bit different here than maybe thinking critically or creatively about some other issues, right? Is there something particular to environmental issues that presents a challenge? Um, I can start with that one, Jerry. It's I for one thing, I just I feel like there is a 
serious need to educate about what is reliable information and that we have some metrics by which we judge if a source is reliable or not, and that we <laughs> are using looking at URLs, for example, and that we are asking our sources, um, what's your background? And again, how did you come to know this? Have, have you researched it? Have you witnessed things? What is your personal experience? So I think um, there's a general lack of science. There's a lack of understanding what is science, what is good science, what is something you should be more spectacle. And so I think what Jerry and I really, really hope people will take from this book is the need to find good, accurate, reliable sources and find the truth and use that to help inform your opinions. And not being overwhelmed with all of the information to the extent that the person gives up and says, I really do need to see what Joe has to say. I don't have time to do all of this. I don't have an interest in doing all of that. And one of the, one of the things that Natasha and I are working on is, uh, in, in this book is to how, how, do we con- how do we come to, how do we help people see that, that it's important to do this? That, that to me is a, is a really important question because it is so easy to allow someone else to do it for us. Oh, it is so easy. How do we help people realize that, as I said earlier, that they have, each person has a responsibility and the ability to develop his or her own opinions and along the way and often collectively decide on plans of action to correct a situation. And I'd add to that in that I think, right, you're talking about time and that these are not all necessarily things we can solve individually or today, (laughs) but we need to start talking about it today and be thinking about it today. And we mentioned the seven generations and thinking using an indigenous um, thought process here on looking seven generations out and also, you know, I, I work with researchers who their whole, they devote their lives to basic research. They will never see a cure. They will never see the full results of their life's work. But that's why we had vaccines so quickly, right, for COVID, because of so much other work that has been done by others. And they never you know, got to see the results, but it was really important work. And so I think there's a need to be patient. And we are, we're a society, we want things now, we are instant gratification, you know, social media, everything is immediate. And we, we, we do have to think about things we can do today, you know, how am I getting to work? (laughs) Could I take um, other forms of transportation? Um, looking at, you know, my eating habits and where does my food come from? Those things I can do and I can do that today. But for things like climate change, I think we also have to be patient and look way beyond probably our lifetimes and think about the next generations. That's a a really interesting point that you brought up because this is something that I deal with a lot when I talk to students about science and the scientific method and, you know, research and technology that we what you we only ever see in the, in the media or the news the end product of what has been you know for some for some a lifetime of work or lifetimes of work um and it's 
it sort of gives you the impression that if we all just think really hard, we can all just, I don't know, we have one big meeting and we solve the problem, right? And that's just not how the world works. It usually, if you have a really big, important, complicated problem in climate change and um, and other environmental problems are big and complicated and multifaceted, the more you dig into them, the kind of the more complex they end up being. Um, and so it takes some time and patience and the long view for a lot of things. But also, as you mentioned, that doesn't mean there's not something you can do right now, right? There are things that are in your control and there are very uh, meaningful individual actions that you can take. Um, I want to return to this idea of how do we help people form an opinion on this issue, right? Um, Because I mentioned before we started recording that I, um, I, I talk with people all the time about forming an opinion. I love forming an opinion. I love walking into a situation and going, I have no idea what's going on here. And then walking out going, you know, now I hopefully know a little bit more about what's going on. And I formed an opinion, right? And that opinion might change as I learn more information. But now I have a very specific set of preferences. Um, I recently, for to give a concrete example, um, recently was house shopping, right? And for months before we actually bought the house, we were looking on, you know, house sites and whatever. And, and my husband and I were talking with each other about, I like this house, I like that house, houses that we had no intention of buying, but just to sort of start talking through what are the things I like or don't like, and to really sort of solidify, like, what that was, was what are our priorities when we're making this decision, when we're making this very important purchase? What are the things, you know, and and seeking compromise and consensus? What are the things that you find important? What are the things that I find important? Now that I've heard your opinion on this, maybe you're right. Maybe that is really something that we should, that we should place more emphasis on, right? And so by the time it came, by the time we actually made the decision and made the purchase, we felt pretty confident in that purchase because we had taken the time right? Months and months of just sort of casual browsing and discussing this, that we really knew what are, what was important to us, what we wanted, and we were satisfied that what we found, you know, met all of those criteria. So I really, really love forming an opinion, but I work with students all the time who are younger, newer to the world, right? Um, and get overwhelmed. We, you talked about being overwhelmed by information before, and they kind of just say, like, I, I don't know. I just, can you just tell me what to do? Because I, I don't really, it's it's too overwhelming for me to kind of think through it. And so a lot of times what I do in academic advising is just, I don't tell them how to think, but I help them sort through their options, right? And kind of ask some probing questions. Um, so I, I wondered what type of advice or insight you had into how do you form an opinion on environmental issues? If somebody is listening to this and says, I mean, I know this is an important thing, but gosh, there's so much out there. Where do I start? I'll give this a go, and then I'm sure Natasha has something uh, to add. Uh, When I was uh, working with my graduate students uh, uh, on these issues, one of the things that I emphasized was helping them to examine and bring out into the open their own personal beliefs and values. Because for many, for most of us, our beliefs and values that have come from our upbringing, from our childhood days, from our communities, from our relatives, from our schooling, all of that is is within the person and influencing how they do things today. 
And I, I w- try to help my students bring all that out into the open and then examine it and say, do I continue to believe this? Do I continue to value this? That, to me, is a starting place for then beginning to do the various approaches to critical and creative thinking that we're outlining in the book. And let me go back to what we were talking about before and underline the importance of patience. Patience is a key word in all of this because it does not happen overnight. It does not happen quickly. Even uh, I would, uh, my courses were as uh, typically they're 16 weeks long, a whole semester. And by the end of the semester, many of my students were really just getting started with this process and beginning to, and beginning to see personal surprises is what they were uncovering and trying to make decisions. Do I really want to continue to believe this or is that an old idea that comes from my childhood that's best left behind? Uh, and, and, and another thing I said, I'm, I, I'm a rural historian as well. And so I'm in teaching history. I will say to my students, we are our histories, whether we want to be or not. And so find, we need to find out what are the stories of our life. I emphasize storytelling and how important it is as a way of examining beliefs and values, perspectives, opinions, whatever we want to look at. The story is key. I taught uh, creative writing, focusing on writing your own story. And it's amazing what people discover that they didn't know they knew. Mm-hmm. And all of that, to me, is part of this process of developing a foundation for dealing with things like environmental questions and problems. And Jerry's, you know, he is a renowned storyteller, and I've learned so much about telling stories, listening to Jerry, and it, it gets, it you go deeper. And one of the things I like to do to help students, I think, you know, personally, a lot of numbers, data, a data dump is scary. It's overwhelming to me. I don't like, I I don't learn by having someone show me a bunch of charts and graphics, right? I'm a kinesthetic learner. I learn by doing, right? So we have to think about how people learn, uh, meet them where they are, but we all have stories to tell, right? And one of the exercises I like to do, and Jerry and I talk about some things you can try, such as mind mapping, for example, taking a topic and um, brainstorming and thinking through all the the different branches you might have. But I enjoy doing free writing with my students. Uh, Jerry enjoys having them um, do journaling. But in their free writing, for example, I hand out fruit. I let them pick a piece of fruit. And the only rules are you start and end with the apple or orange. What you say in between is what it's stream of conscious. It's letting your mind go someplace. And um, and that's that's creativity, right? That then you can um, weave in with some more critical questions. I love the exercise. I don't just assign an English paper. I, I want my students to have research questions so that they have somewhere a roadmap to help them so they don't get sort of off the path and become distracted and end up down a different um, alley. So um, some of these exercises that we talk about in the book, I think can be very helpful to anyone who is feeling 
possibly overwhelmed and using storytelling and things like mind mapping and free writing and journaling. Right. So I'm hearing that a good place to start, right, is where you're at, right, with whatever sort of skill set or comfort level you have. But most importantly, to um, to really clarify what is important to you, right, to make it personal, to make it how is this relevant for me and the situation I'm in and the place that I'm at what are the things that I need to worry about, right? Like, like we've touched on, the things that I need to worry about, the things that I care about are probably different than things that you need to worry about, that you need to care about, right? So the the way that we interact with this information and the way that we sort of uh, maybe dip our toes in it and start to look for information is probably going to be different, right? Because we're going to care about different things. Um, wh- one of the things that came up for me when we did, when we were looking for a house, that like I... My husband and I, we talked a lot about, well, you know, we have this idea in our head of a house in the suburbs with a yard, but is that really what we want? Do we, I, we actually, we would like, we ended up picking someplace that was in the city where we would have access to parks and amenities and a smaller yard, a shorter commute. It'd be awesome to be able to ride our bikes if we wanted, right? And so this was something right in conversation where we realized like I do care a lot about environmental issues. And this is something that we talk about and realize that like, gosh, I I really feel like if I, you know, after learning more about, you know, how bad the daily commute is and um, urban, you know, suburban sprawl is, you know, do, is this, is this something, you know, we like the idea of a yard, but is this really important to us, right? What, there are some trade-offs here. And that was something that I think maybe five years ago wouldn't have entered into the discussion in terms of just our personal journey of where we were at and what we were kind of thinking of, right? And so that was an interesting thing that we kind of both settled on in the process as we were discussing, you know, why do you like this house versus that house? And we were like, you know, the yards are nice, but I feel like I mean, for me, I just felt like I wouldn't really be able to get to know my neighbors. I wanted to be, want to move someplace where I could be a part of a community. I hated the houses where you just, you see the garage first, like you don't even see the front door or the front porch. And I was just like, you're just so closed off from people. Um, So for us, that was, again, a surprising way in which having these conversations and just sort of reading articles and, and watching, you know, some good documentaries and videos that meant that when it came time for us to make this decision, we had already been kind of thinking critically about this and said, okay, I, I think this is uh, a way in which th- if this is important to us, a decision we can make, and this can be a factor in how we make that decision. Um, yeah, I wondered if if you have any sort of specific or concrete examples of maybe an environmental issue and how someone, um, like for instance... I, well, climate change is just so big. That's too big. That's too many things. Um, it's such a big umbrella term. But if you could, uh, Natasha, if you could come up with an example of an issue and how someone might begin to approach that and, and forming an idea around that. You brought up water. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that might be a good place to start. Sure. So, um, and, and Jerry has excellent examples that come from um the dairy industry and how we're seeing changes in, you know, our dietary, you know, which affects all of us um, and purchasing power. Um, So, yeah, I think for water issues too, the other thing I try to be a little cognizant 
again, not everybody has a lake home. Not everybody has access to the environment in the way that I've been lucky to, right? Um, I can go to a state park five minutes from my house. We have our farm, right? We plant a garden. Some people live in apartments in the city. They they might not have um, access like that. So I, I think as much as we can do um, in terms of action steps is to provide people with access um, to things like, a, you know, a beach, <laughs> um, being able to go out on the water, to take a kid fishing, um, let them see the value of um, harvesting their own food, knowing where their food comes from. I think of the health benefits, for example, of swimming, right? And and the need for fresh water. Some of us have that, others, others don't. They either have to have bottled water or a filter. And so again, we are, as we've talked about earlier, we all come from different situations. And, and for me, I think a really big important issue is, is access to some of these, you know, go to a forest and sit, <laughs> provide access to someone to go and, um, you know, experience a state park to be able to go hiking, or if you're not able, um, what resources are available to help you be able to experience those things. Because I think experiencing things, right, witnessing things yourself is a really important way to learn. For me, one of the issues I talk about in the book, I was very passionate about um, were Native American treaty rights and spearfishing. And there were um, racial uh, protests and it was a very dangerous situation in Northern Wisconsin. And I, I went there in college and I was one of the witnesses and documented through video and photos and interviews what I saw. And it really changed my perspective about a part of the state and a very important environmental issue and all the different facets that played into that and looking at it from an interdisciplinary perspective. So I think as much as we can do to help people see and experience, um, we'll go a long way in helping inform our thinking. But I, I want Jerry to talk about his thoughts on the dairy industry. And yeah. One of the words that I'm using more and more these days is to suggest to people the importance of and the power of solitude, being away from the screen, being away from everything that's in the background making noise, finding, uh, having the opportunity to visit a place that's so quiet that all you hear is the wind blowing through the leaves of the tree or perhaps the waves lapping on the shore of a small pond. And through solitude, we, all, we are able to do some of that background thinking that we've talked about before. And solitude is missing in the lives of so many people these days. Everyone wants to be busy all the time. There's noise in the background constantly. And one of the, Natasha mentioned our farm, one of the reasons I enjoy being at our farm is just that, the solitude of and what happens when it's quiet. So there are a number of these kinds of things that we talk about in the book as keys to helping people get excited about and be excited enough to want to think through what would be an appropriate thing for me and for others whom I might collaborate to do. Because the collaboration of people is also a very important part. 
of what we're talking about. We, we, we've alluded to this a bit in this conversation. We can't do it alone. People cannot do it alone. So on the one hand, solitude to get things straight. On the other hand, the necessity of and the excitement of working with people who may have ideas that are fairly different from ours. It's difficult today with the polarization of our society to see how people with differing fundamental ideas may come together collectively and agree on something. As we think back to the early days of the environmental movement when Earth Day first happened, there was a Democrat and a Republican working together, for heaven's sakes, agreeing that this was something for everyone, not just for a, a, a small collective of people. Well, I could go on with that uh, idea at some length, but I feel very strongly about finding out where we are, what we believe, and what we can do, and then doing something about it. Just don't, don't just sit back and say, well, I'm all upset, and do something about it. And you do that generally in a collective kind of way. And one of the things that, that I find when you're able to come together with people and, and share your concerns and work as a community is, as you said, it's energizing, right? That is, if you are only ever sitting alone with a problem, it can be very overwhelming and isolating, and it can feel very hopeless. But as soon as you work together to take collective action on something, you get you see other people's energy and enthusiasm and you see change happening, right? In a way that sort of takes something that was big and scary and overwhelming, and then it makes it more personal, it makes it more, I guess, personable because you're working with other people, and and that's just you know, incredibly energizing and uplifting. The one liner I use as you help others, you are helping yourself. And and that's true of a whole bunch of situations, especially in the environment. There's research to show that people who work the land, let's say that you, uh, and I wrote a novel about this, if you are a uh, injured veteran, psychologically and physically, as you work the land and perhaps work on a piece of land that needs help, as you help that piece of land, that piece of land is helping you. That's a very interesting way of thinking about things. And that's true of a lot of the environmental questions. As you help to solve that problem, it is helping you, whether you realize it or not sometimes, to solve a personal problem that you have. There's something called citizen science, and I think that's just really important, um, where we can all be scientists. You don't even have to have a degree, right? We can all go out and count butterflies. We can all like mm -hmm. um, contribute to um, helping what we see, phenology, and reporting that, and um, and I, I think that's a great way to get kids excited about science too. Um, Jerry and I have talked about, you know, don't don't buy them worms if they're going fishing. Have them go dig some worms somewhere, right? Like, um, get them involved in those kinds of ways. And so, you know, Jerry, I like the point he makes about you're working with your resources and you're working with each other. And so we are we are part of the environment, right? We're not separate from it. We need it. <laughs> we cannot live without a healthy environment, and um, so we need we need to be a part of that. And 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 we uh, make several suggestions in the book of the importance of getting acquainted with the indigenous literature on this topic, and there's a good deal of it. 
the indigenous folks have a lot to say to us if we would learn to listen and pay attention. And this idea that Natasha mentioned before of doing today with the idea of the result being seven generations from now is a powerful idea. Absolutely. Well, and I think this is, to my mind, similar to the idea of, of citizen science and just that we've we've put up a lot of maybe unnecessary barriers to people feeling like they can get involved and can take action and that we have this maybe unnecessary separation, right? That's a job for the the scientists who are off at the universities doing whatever it is they do. And I'm just little of me and I'm out here and I'm separate or, you know, that's a thing that happens in the environment and I am a thing that is separate, right? Um, versus a uh, the perspective that we are part of the environment, that we are part of a larger community, that we can all contribute in some meaningful way. Um, and abs- absolutely to your point, Jerry, that there are, uh, that there's so much knowledge and experience from Indigenous communities, and, and that is just, that has been ignored for a while, and at least in Western American culture, right? Because it doesn't come from those people over there, the scientists, the one who do the information, right? As I say this as a scientist, I mean, I have a degree in in, in science, and I think I do a fair amount of it. Uh, but that just means that I have one particular set of experiences that can hopefully be helpful to people. It doesn't mean it's the only way of knowing something or the only way to arrive at a conclusion, right? Um, so we should be paying attention to other ways of knowing and other ways that people have arrived at conclusions, right, about, especially about our environment. I could go on. It's been fantastic talking to both of you. Um, I I wanted just so you can let our listeners know, when does the book come out? Where can people go to get it? Is it available for pre-order anywhere? Um, I, I think this episode will be coming out hopefully around the time the book comes out, but when does the book come out? It's so... Yay, Earth Day. Yay. <laughs> We're all focused on Earth Day, April. So I think that that is April 18th. It is available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, and we, we like to support independent and local booksellers. So um, go and ask them how to get a copy. Um, support your libraries, right? Um, from fulcrumbooks.com, F-U-L-C-R-U-M books.com. They're publishing it. And then you can pre-order at Amazon as well. And uh yeah, we're just really, I think, pretty thrilled about the timing and that we were able to make this work for Earth Day. Yeah, um, I will include a link to um, the the book from Fulcrum um, and as well as a link to probably bookshop.org, which is a website where part, a portion of the proceeds goes to local bookshops um, so that folks can check it out there. Um, Jerry, Natasha, thank you again so much for, for joining us and for telling us a bit more about thank you this episode is funded by listeners like you to support our work and gain access to exclusive content visit our patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists